Hey, let's show our appreciation to Nate Shelley. I became uh, acquainted with Nate through my son, Alec. Um, we, I've just returned from vacation in Australia, taking Alec over there and kind of leaving him there. He irritates me so much. No, just joking. But um, we booked his tickets to go, and we're all going to go. And then one day, Alec comes to me and says, hey, Dad, um, this guy called Nate is going to touch me. He asked me to go and play some uh, worship concerts with him in Europe. It's in Germany. It's kind of where we uh, used to live. Is it okay if I go? And I'm like, good Lord, I've just booked all the tickets. What am I going to do here? So I called uh, the airline company, and they changed uh, the flight. So then I got back to Nate, and I said, okay, he can do it under one condition. You come and lead worship here. And so he did, and I'm glad he was here. And you'll, you'll thank you for doing that. <clears throat> He wrote that song we just sang, and he's got a number of CDs out there, Hymnology. This one is from an EP uh, that he wrote that song. I think it's uh, just an incredible uh, song of truth. And Nate has got some CDs outside. So if uh, Nate has inspired you in any way, the worship can continue on the way home. Do stop and uh, just go look at the CDs. And as I say, they'll be back up here after I've closed this message just to uh, sing one more song. But I'm glad to be back with you today for a message entitled Serve One, Serve All. This is a message that God really laid on my heart about two months ago, and uh, it led me to a passage in Matthew chapter 25. So if you have got a Bible, please turn to Matthew 25, and uh, we're going to look today at a passage of Scripture, which is a parable entitled, The Parable of the Bags of Gold. If you need a copy of the Scriptures and you haven't got access to one, you can raise your hands in the air, and our ushers will be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures. Once you've got that, you can turn to page 994, and you can follow along with us from that. So again, if you need to copy the scriptures, raise your hands in the air, and the rushes will give you a copy of them. And uh, this is a parable uh, that Jesus teaches. And uh, as you see, it begins in verse 14 with the words, again, it. What is it referred to? If you look back up to the start of chapter 25, you'll see at that time, the kingdom of heaven. So what is it? It refers to the kingdom of heaven. Taking you back to our kingdom and empire series, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're essentially talking about the rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught us to pray for, and what we pray for, we live for. So this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven, about God's rule and reign being experienced, and in this parable, expressed through Christ followers on earth while Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father. This talks about how we live, okay? So again, if the kingdom of heaven, this is what it's going to be like. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. 
His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put your money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have been will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, what a lovely story. <laughs> a couple of things are important. This parable essentially talks about the doctrine of rewards, not the doctrine of grace. You have to bear that in mind when it comes to an interpretation. The doctrine of rewards is secondary to the doctrine of grace. What does that mean? It basically means there is a portion of eschatology, the, the study of the future, that has to do with the rewards that we receive for being faithful here on earth. The servant who has five, the servant who has two, they're faithful with what they've been given. They receive a double um, double back what they've received. They've invested and used wisely what they've been given. And Jesus then says to them, this is your reward. The idea is of rewards. And then we get to the guy with one who doesn't invest it and then he's thrown out. Some commentators are saying, well, that means he doesn't get a reward. Actually, no, that's not what the parable says. The parable says he is thrown out of the kingdom. He's thrown out. Why? Because he never was in in the first place. You see, the issue here is we have been called to use what we have been given. And if we do not use what we have been given, then the reality is, do we worship God at all? Now, to understand this, what I need you to do is I need you to understand what I would call the co-text, not the context. The context, people use this wrongly, context refers to the social and the historical context at the time. I'm talking about the text, the portion of text in which this parable reaches us. This parable comes to us in what is called the fifth teaching discourse of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is keen to show Jesus as the new Moses. So what he does is he takes all of Jesus' teaching he has him teach them on mountains, usually, Moses and mountains, and he has five teachings to represent the five teachings in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus is the new Moses. This is the fifth discourse, the fifth teaching, and this teaching has to do with a certain theme. Now, to understand that theme, we basically need to go back to Matthew chapter 24. It begins in Matthew chapter 24. And in verse 3, we read this. And this Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. There we have it. The fifth teaching is on a mountain because Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one that we should listen to. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice, please, there are two questions here. When will this happen is the first question. When will what happen? 
verses 1 and 2. The disciples and Jesus have just come out of the temple worshiping, and the disciples turn around, and they just say, man, look at this building. Isn't this building incredible, Jesus? Look at it. And Jesus almost dismissively says, oh, don't take any notice of that. That is coming down. That is coming down. That refers to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. When will this happen? Jesus, when will the temple come down? Tell us about this. What's going to happen in the future that we'll know that this is the time? When will this happen? The second question then is, what will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age. Now, this is important because Matthew chapter 24 and 25 talk a lot about the doctrine of eschatology. There's eschatology, future things in there. So many Christians make a mistake in thinking that all of this teaching in 24 and 25 refers to only Jesus' second coming, but it doesn't. Look, he's being asked the question, when will this happen? Some of Matthew 24 and 25 refers to the time after Jesus died, after Jesus ascended, and before the destruction of the temple. Now, the challenge we've got in interpreting the text is to work out when the transition happens. When does Jesus stop talking about the events leading to the destruction of the temple, and when does he start talking about those events that happen that will precipitate his coming again? That's the challenge we've got. But one thing is pretty clear in all of this. This verse, verse 19, makes it pretty clear that the parable that we're looking at is talking about that period after the destruction of the temple and before Jesus comes again. It's not talking, it's not applying simply to the disciples being encouraged to learn lessons from this parable. It's not just to the 12 and to the 120 and to the thousands that came to Christ before the destruction of the temple. It's actually for all of us. The, the parable says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned. What would be the sign of your coming again? What would be the sign of your return? This parable speaks of something ushering in the return of Jesus, and when Jesus returns, he expects a certain quality to be expressed through the life of people who truly worship him. That's the point. So this is a tough passage, but it's a passage that all of those people who truly worship Jesus have nothing to fear because we're already doing this. This is actually designed, this parable, to provoke in those people who believe that it is okay to believe and not do a reaction. This, this is designed to show us that if we say we believe Jesus, but do not do what Jesus says, then we do not believe him at all. That's the context. And so when you look at this, the idea in the parable is that Jesus has given you talents. Now in the context here, talents refers to money, but in, our, in another context, it refers to the gifts that you have been given, spiritual gifts, those capabilities that you have of doing something. That's what I want to address today. It's your gifts, it's your talents. It's those things that God has given to you. And God wants you to use what you have been given. And in fact, if you believe that God has uniquely wired you, you will do something with what you've been given. And if you're not doing anything with what you've been given, if we basically come to church and we sit there and we do not serve Jesus, then this parable challenges us to realize that maybe we don't love Jesus at all. 
So this is a parable about service, serving Jesus. This is a parable about being challenged to use what God has given to us. It's a parable that challenges us to have an orientation towards risk. That's the concept here. Are we willing to risk what Jesus has given to us for the sake of his will and his purpose being done in the world? Now, what is his will and his purpose? To what end are we supposed to be using our gifts and our talents? Well, this first section in Matthew chapter 24 tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. God has given each and every one of us gifts, In the passage, it says, according to our ability. In 1 Corinthians, it says, according to the grace that has been given to us. He has given us gifts that he wants us to use in order for the gospel to go to all nations, to all peoples. And then the end will come. So in other words, we are supposed to use those gifts that God has given us to the end of ensuring that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and that more people, people who've never heard, experience the hope and the life that Jesus brings. And that's why we exist as a church. We're to risk everything for that. We're to use our gifts towards that end. And so this parable is challenging us to realize that it's not enough to have a vision of the future in which we see Jesus coming back in all of his glory. It's not enough to believe it. In fact, to truly believe it means that we will use our gifts for the sake of the gospel until Jesus comes again. To have a vision demands that we work hard for it by taking the gospel to the ends of the world. So let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is coming again? If we do, then we will use what we have been given and we will work hard at it because that's what God expects. There's a a Czech philosopher who wrote these words and I love these words. Vision is not enough. It must be combined with venture. And this is what I like. I can truly imagine this picture. It is not enough to stare up the steps. We must also step up the stairs. If we believe that Jesus is coming again, as tempting as it may be, in a world that is so messed up, to take a step back, in fact, what the children of God do Believing that Jesus will come again is we step in. We step out. Recognizing that the safest place for us to be in this world is on the front lines, serving Jesus, proclaiming that he offers hope and life to a messed up world. And that's the calling on our church. Our world is messed up. We sang songs today. We focused on praying for the nations. We do that because that's what Jesus expects us to do. And we have a vision of doing that at Central, beginning from right here in Holland. This needs to be our perspective. This needs to be our focus, our vision, and our goal over and over again. 
So the question is, what is this parable asking of us? There are many lessons I could draw from this, but I want to pick up two. And the first one is this. I think this parable, in this parable, Jesus is challenging you and I to maintain the right perspective. I was on the plane ca coming home and I opened a, a German news app I've got and I read about the, um, the person in, what is it, in the McDonald's in Munich that went around and just shot people. I, while I was away, I just read about disaster after disaster after disaster and I'm thinking to myself, God, what on earth is going on? Sometimes it's really hard to maintain perspective, isn't it, when our world seems to be so messed up. Sometimes it's really hard to think that God truly is on the throne and in control. And when that becomes personal to you, when you've personally experienced loss, pain, hardship, one of the hardest things to do in a moment where you're suffering or experiencing it is to actually maintain the right perspective. In this parable, we have evidence that the, the wicked servant, the one talent servant, wasn't keeping the right perspective. I mean, we read it here in verse 24. Lord, I know you're a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Is that your experience of God? That's not mine. See, this is a, this is a servant who actually has the wrong perspective on God. His perspective on God has been warped. Now the question is why? In the context of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, many commentators say what Jesus is digging into here is the, is the, the feeling of loss and sadness and the depressed state of a Jewish people who were yet again controlled by a hostile nation and wanted to experience freedom. There was an increasing sense of disillusionment as a result of what they were experiencing. Some commentators say, Jesus is tapping into this. It's this idea that the one talent servant was expressing a perspective on God that was wrong. One commentator puts it like this. The explicit problem with the wicked servant is his attitude about his master. This is the way many people deal with God. Their wrong attitude about God, God is mean, God is unconcerned with our fate, results in an, an excuse for disobedience to his calling. It can also be applied by Christians who can develop attitudes about God. They see God as unloving because of their circumstances and they then depart from the path of obedience. It's really easy when life doesn't go the way that we want it to go, to take a step back and say, hey, that's it. But God, I, I'm not gonna be as close to you as I, as I once was. I'm gonna take that step back. Experience, circumstances do that. They cause us to have a, a wrong perspective on God, which all too often forces us to take a step back rather than to step up. There is this whole idea in the scriptures about betrayal and how hard it is when we feel that God has betrayed us to move through the betrayal and to experience God's newness and God's hope, to actually experience the healing and the restoration that God brings. 
So our circumstances can actually cause us to take a step back and not maintain the right perspective. But it's not the only thing. There are a number of other things that actually can cause us not to have the right perspective. Let me go through this quickly. Sometimes we won't have the right perspective on God or on the world because we're just not curious enough. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were curious about anything that's going on in the world? Now, I'm a, I'm a British citizen. I've been curious about why Britain voted to come out of Europe, the Brexit. I'm curious why 75% of young people voted to stay in and 75% of old people voted to get out. I'm curious, why is there such a divide between the old and the young? I'm curious about why it is that London, capital of England, Cardiff, the capital of Wales, Glasgow, the capital, and Edinburgh, capitals and big cities in Scotland, and then you've got Belfast in Northern Ireland, why did they vote to stay in? And all of the rural areas, a lot of the rural areas voted to get out. That tells me that there is a divide between the big cities and the rural areas. Makes me curious. A guy called McGillis wrote recently in the Washington Post that the phenomenon that was experienced in Britain is actually being experienced and run out right now politically in our nation. That there is a divide between the, the cities and the mentality in the cities, the more cosmopolitan uh, cities, and then the rural areas. That our country is a divided nation. There's a gap, they say, between old and young and the philosophies and the approaches. I'm curious about this. What are you curious about? Because I'll tell you what, the degree to which you are curious about what's going on in the world will affect your perspective. And your perspective will, will actually have an impact on whether, whether you participate or whether you spectate. And see, the reality is, depending on where you sit in, the, in this room, your perspective on the church is different. That's understandable. We've all got a perspective. But the reality is it's only when we participate, when we get up and get involved in it, that we actually begin to see it as it truly is. And one of the critical factors to getting involved and getting the right perspective is to be curious. What are you curious about? What are you thinking, you know what, I really don't get this and I need to find out what's going on here? Curiosity. Some of you are thinking, Craig, I haven't got the time to be curious. Make time. This world is a big world, it's a fascinating world. Discover it. Because when you start to be curious about little things, you start to become fascinated with life and then life starts to make sense. I gotta get through these, I could spend hours on this. Limit glo limited global experience. Some people haven't got the right perspective because they have got no global experience whatsoever. I'm, I'm thrilled that we've got 40 people going to Guatemala, that we've got a large group of young adults going over to South Africa. I'm thrilled that we send about 130, 150, 200 people every year on mission trips. You know why? You take someone out of their context, you dump them in another context, all of a sudden, God is bigger than they knew. God is bigger than they've ever experienced. Same thing with our, with our young people going to St. Louis. Take them out of their context. Put them in somebody else's world. Expand their horizons, and God all of a sudden becomes a lot bigger. Let me ask you, how big is your God? How, how broad is your global perspective? See, Christianity is a supercultural truth. It's above every culture and in every culture, not just ours. God isn't just our God. 
He's the God of the world. He's the God of the nations. <laughs> Some of us just haven't got the right perspective because you know what? We like what we've got. We don't need anything else because this is good enough. When it comes to marriages, we should like what we've got. It is good enough. Too many people think the grass is greener on the other side. That's not true. But in lots of other things, we should actually be willing to push the boat out, to step into it, to experience the adventure of life. And yet we don't. We don't think long term. We haven't got the right perspective because we're so focused on now that we don't see what's coming down the road. Let's pick our heads up now and again and start to think about where do we want to be in two years? One of the questions I ask for any staff coming in is, where do you want to be in five years? Where, where do you want to be in 10 years? What do you want to do? Vipka and I are in a season where we just left uh, my son in Australia, and we're in a season where we're starting to think about, okay, we've got two in college, we've got another four to go. What do we need to do to put ourselves in the right pos position to actually make that happen? Think long-term. Take your head out of now. Start to think about what's coming. Because you know who is coming, Jesus. And because Jesus is coming, we need to do something about it. We're unaware of our own cultural biases. Guys, I believe this is the biggest issue facing the evangelical church in America today. We are not aware of our own cultural, I'm going to say this, bigotry. Our God is a tribal God in many ways. And I want to tell you, no, he's not. He's the God of the nations. And we have cultural biases, and the only way that we will do that is to get our head out of our own culture and start to mingle with others. I really believe that this, this truth was built on my heart as God planted me in a, in a community that was becoming increasingly multicultural. We had people of over 60 nations in this church, and a Nigerian would be so loud, and I would be so quiet. Some of the Africans would be so expressive, and the Asians would just be there, and I'm thinking, God, what is this? And I soon discovered that what God wanted me to have was the perseverance and the joy and suffering that our African and African-American brothers all too often express. They wanted me to embody that humility of an Asian, that engineering kind of mindset of a European and that pioneering spirit of an American and that rhythm of a Latino. I'll probably have to wait till I die to get that part in me, but <laughs> God wants us to have that. And yet, all too often, we're unaware of our own cultural biases. And, and I think this leads to, uh, leads to this one, localized expertise. We're specialists in a few things, and we think that that's everything. This affects the way that I want to staff our church, the people I put in leadership positions. I want to make sure that I remember over and over again that the worst thing that I can possibly do is to put people in key positions who look like me and think like me. That's the worst thing I could do, because we will have knowledge as big as mine, not as big as God's. You know, too many people look for a church where people look like them. And then they go in there, they say, too many white, too many African-American, too many Hispanic. But you know, God isn't calling us, as Erwin McManus says, to go to a church where everybody looks like us. God is calling you to go to a church where you are encouraged to look like Jesus. And that's this point. We spend too much time with people who think like, just like we do. 
who look like we do, because it's comfortable. But comfortable isn't a word that's in God's vocabulary. Not if we're working towards Jesus coming back. Maintain the right perspective. And I have no doubt, as you look at this, you can probably pick up one thing in there that the Spirit of God has just hit you with, and you're saying, you know what? I really need to develop this. Let me encourage you, just pick one thing. Work on it. And what you'll discover is uh, the realization, wow, God really is bigger than I possibly, ever possibly imagined him to be. Now, what I want you to do at this moment is I want you to, to just take a look at this statement. Because I think this is our response to this. Don't sit in the sidelines. Ask questions. You know God is okay with you asking questions. Ask questions. Extend your horizons, broaden your relationships, deepen your appreciation of the world, step out beyond your own borders. And you know what? It's never too late to step out. I want you to look at this story. A lady came to me a little while ago, and uh, we were having a conversation, and I asked her her story, and she shared me her story, and it was such a beautiful story. I asked her to record it to share with all of you. This is a story of a lady who experienced personal heartache, but rather than take a step back, through the encouragement of the scriptures, she took a step in, retooled, and then now God is using her, even later in life, to minister to so many people. It just tells us it's never too late to start. Have a look at this. In 1971, I married the man of my dreams and thought we were planning to go into ministry together and thought that everything was going to be perfect. You know, the Cinderella story, you get married and you live happily ever after. And uh, we had two beautiful children, daughters, and um, it was so much fun watching them grow up. And yet, throughout all of that wonderful time, we had a secret that we were keeping, my husband and I. My husband had been unfaithful throughout our marriage. At the end of that 22 years, I just was at a point where I couldn't continue to live in the deception and the lies of many betrayals that had happened. And so I uh, filed for divorce and I was devastated. I, I just didn't really know if I could even keep going from day to day. I didn't know where I was going to go or how my life would come together again or if it would come together again and how I would manage financially. and. Um, it was just one of those experiences that you never think you're going to have to go through in your lifetime. But I remember the night that I had to go down to Indiana Wesleyan and pick up my oldest daughter and bring her home so that we could meet with the counselor and my husband would tell my, our children what had been going on throughout our marriage. And that was probably one of the most difficult things for me. I didn't sleep at all that night. I just agonized over it. I felt that the girls needed to know the truth, but to have them know the truth and to be disappointed in their dad was really difficult. So I went through this really difficult divorce and it was very painful. But what I didn't know is that God had an amazing calling on my life. 
at age 55 after three job losses, I and feeling like God was just hitting me over head, the head with a two by four. I um, was in counseling. My counselor said to me, so Shirley, if you could do anything at all, what would you do? And I said, I would do what you do. And he said, well then, why don't we talk about what would keep you from doing that? So we explored that together. I went home and talked with my husband. We decided I was going to go back to graduate school at 55. And so I started going to Grand Valley that fall and finished my degree in two years and started counseling with people. So I call myself a late bloomer because 55 is not when I thought I would be doing that. And so now, I'm age 67 and I'm growing from a private practice into an agency. It's a risky move at my age, but God has given me a promise that he was going to use the difficulties that I was going through to help other people. And I came across the passage in 2 Corinthians first chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we, in turn, can comfort others. And that really has been, become my life first. So I feel God's presence, and it's so exciting when I'm sitting there and the client will say something to me, and I'm thinking, man, I have no idea what to say. <laughs> I have no idea how to help this person and words will just roll off my tongue and I know that it's God. That's what God has been calling me to do is to help other people and to use my pain and my story to be able to do that. Fifty-five experiences incredible heartbreak. Determines not to take a step back but to actually go through all of this, and now at the age of 67, is not just going from a private practice into an agency, but is actually moving offices and taking over a bigger property. That's kind of not the way that this typically works. And the lesson here is it's never too late to follow the leading of the Spirit and step into ministry as God leads you. But in order to do that, you've got to maintain perspective. It would have been so easy for Shirley to, to basically allow her pain to force her back, but she didn't. She maintained the right perspective because the Word of God spoke life and hope into her spirit and enabled her to realize just as God was comforting her, so God would use her to be a comfort to others. And she stepped into it. And this has been nothing but an adventure ever since. Church, do the same thing. What we need in this day and age with a country and the world so messed up is Christians who are willing to take a step of faith, as risky as it may seem, and actually step into the mess of the world, and then life will make so much sense. Let me move on from this. I think the second thing this passage tells me is that we're to do this until the very end, until the master returns. This is our mindset. It's the mindset of the church. What is the church about? It's basically about taking the hope and life that Jesus offers until Jesus comes back again. That's what we're called to do. The end of the parable has the servant being thrown out. And this shows just what Jesus thinks of people not using what they've been given. That's the shocking end designed to help us see that claiming to love Master Jesus and not serving him means that we do not love him at all. 
again, if we say that we love Jesus, then this parable teaches us that we serve him. The obvious question is, are you serving Jesus right now? Now, we all know that we can serve him more faithfully, but are we? And if we're not, are we willing to do business with that question and ask ourselves, do we really love him? Now, there are many reasons why people don't serve, and I just want to go through a few of them, why people don't have this action orientation. And firstly is, you may be here and you're burned out. You've got this helper syndrome that you just serve, 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 and you're burned out. Listen to me. If you're burned out, enjoy a season of rest. But there are many other reasons. We procrastinate. We're hesitant. We're reluctant to decide. We're not motivated. We're bored. I honestly believe that being a Christian and being bored should be an anathema. But the reality is for many of us, our Christian faith is so docile because we are bored. Again, don't just sit there. Do something. This life should be an adventure. Enjoy it. Live it. We lack self-confidence. Many of us don't step in because we lack confidence. You know, this is this orientation towards risk that many of us struggle with. I actually believe that right now I'm in a season of risk in my life in an incredible way. For me, the last two weeks, the last two and a half weeks when I've been on vacation, it's the first time in 25 years of ministry I've ever taken two Sundays off for vacation. Never done it before. It felt risky. Not because I couldn't trust anybody around here, but because that's just like letting go and letting God too much for my, you know, for my comfort. And then not only did I take two Sundays off, I went over the other side of the world and left my son there and got on a plane and came back. That felt risky. And then while we were there, as God's challenging me on this, Craig, you need to have an orientation towards risk. I decided to take one more. Any of you heard of Airbnb? Some of you young guys have heard of Airbnb, right? That's the way the young folks actually travel. It's basically this online community portal where you kind of find people who have space in their house and run going to a hotel. You actually go and stay with people. And I thought, well, I'm a pastor. Let's go stay with people. So I told Jonas, my 16-year-old, he looked at me and said, you're going to do that? <laughs> and I said, are you okay with that? And he said, fine. So I, I kind of organized the first one. We kind of stayed in Sydney a couple of days, and we fly up to Brisbane, and then we were going to drive up the Great Barrier Reef. Jonas wanted to go snorkeling and all this kind of stuff. So I planned out the route. And the first night, we were going to stay in a place called Harvey Bay. They say Harvey Bay, but it's H-E-R. How do you say Harvey? That's the Australian accent. It's weird. Um, so we stayed in this place called Harvey Bay, got this room sorted, and, and kind of like, I'm like, oh, Lord, why did I do this thing? And I'm going up, and I knock on the door of the house, and, and then it slowly opens, and my heart's in my, heart's in my gut, and I'm thinking, oh, no. And then this lady says, welcome in the broadest English accent I've ever heard in my life. I traveled the other side of the world, and I met with a fellow Brit. And after that, I thought, this is really easy. <laughs> but... The point is, some of us, we just lack the self-confidence. There is not this orientation towards risk because there's something stopping us. Some of these things just need to be overcome. You just need to do it. Don't procrastinate, just do it. We're perfectionists. For some of us, we, we are driven to, to be, get everything so right that working with people whose standards seem to be lower than ours is frustrating. So we just rather not get involved than be a pain to someone else. Again, we failed. 
If you've ever experienced failure in, in anything, it's sometimes really hard to step back in. And this one is sadly the attitude of many. That's what we pay the pastors to do, isn't it? Just let the professionals do it. But the Bible doesn't have much to say about this idea of a separation between what the, the clergy is supposed to do and what the lay people are supposed to do. So my encouragement here is, again, if you recognize this is me, I, I'm not serving Christ because, you know, this is basically where it's at. Then again, do something with this. Move into it. According to Jesus, recognizing the lack of service, thinking about it, analyzing it, they're all important, but it is actually serving him that counts. That's the point. Serving Jesus counts. Unless we're burned out, we do something. Jesus never envisioned the come and see movement, but a go and do movement. To be a Christian is to be someone who orients yourself towards service. The greater risk for a Christ follower is what will happen if we do not do something. Because until Jesus returns, we serve. So let me ask you that question again. Where are you serving Jesus? It, it should be in your home. It should be in your family. It needs to be around your neighbors, in your workplaces. Wherever you are, you serve Jesus. Sometimes that's a, an attitude. Sometimes that's a, a work of service. It can also be in the church. And we're in a season here where God is doing great things. And part of the reason this message was burned on my heart is because I was preparing all of the data for the annual report, which I think in two weeks you, you guys will all see. And it just amazed me what God had done. Uh, do you know that we are caring for 30% more children than we were a year ago? 30%. Not only that, we've actually got a Celebrate Recovery ministry starting in the fall that is going to bring in more children. We've got an indoor adventure playground that is going to come in and hopefully be running by the start of next year, even before the Christmas season, we hope, that's going to bring in hundreds of children every day. In addition to which, our Kids Hope ministry that meant us to, to so many children in a local school needs another 20 to 30 mentors. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm realizing just what God is doing and how our horizons are being expanded. Our, our tent is being enlarged. And I'm recognizing in order to keep up with what God is doing, we do need people to serve. Think about 30% more kids than we had a year ago. And yet the number of people serving isn't actually keeping pace with the number of kids that are coming in. Guys, this is good news. It's a great problem to have, but we need people to serve. Imagine two with me. With more people coming into the church, we need more people with guest services. Think with me what it's like for a lady, a woman, a wife that's been encouraging her husband to come to church and, and, he makes, and he makes the decision, okay, I'm going to come to church with you on Sunday. In a moment like that, we pastors realize that the sermon actually begins in the parking lot before they actually ever get into church because that guy is going to be looking for any and every reason he can not to like what's going to go on in here. What would it be like to have enough people actually welcoming guests in here that we would blow a guy like that away with compassion and kindness and just blow his socks off in the expectations of what a church is like? With more people coming in, we need that. So here's what I want you to do. On the end of your rows, on the left side of your rows, there is a card that says, serve one, serve all. What I'd like you to do, if you're on the left side of the pew there, if you can grab that, take one and pass it on. In, on that pew, 
uh, on that card rather, there are a number of areas right now that we just need people to, to be willing to serve. And what my ask is basically this. Could I ask you to prayerfully consider picking out an area and possibly two areas to serve in over the next 12 months? The reason I'm doing this right now in the summer is the summer is the good time to do this. Everything slows down. We recognize that in church. We kind of have the, the same sets on Sundays. We try and give people a break. This is a good time to, to take stock of what's happening. So this is a good time to, to ask. I'm not asking for next Sunday. I'm asking for the season beginning through the fall. Again, those of you who are serving in a number of areas already, I want you to bear in mind this truth. God does not expect us to go beyond our capacity for risk. He doesn't expect us to go beyond our capacity for service. If God has given you a five-talent capacity, then use it. Five-talent capacity, you're suddenly empty nesters and you're wondering what on earth do we do with our time? Five-talent capacity, two-talent capacity, one-talent capacity. God doesn't expect you to go beyond your capacity. So the lesson here is if if doing nothing is faithless, going beyond your capacity is folly. I'm not asking you to commit more than you can do. But I am saying God is doing an incredible work, and in a couple of weeks you're going to see this in the annual report, what's going on in here. And remember, these numbers are names, their people, their stories, their lives that have been touched with the hope and life of Jesus. And now as a community, we, we just need to respond. And so according to your capacity, could I ask you to consider stepping up in an area of service? And if you were to ask me, Craig, we've got, okay, I can recognize we've got a dam here and we've got some holes in here and the water's coming through. If, where can I put my finger? If you, if you were going to tell me, Craig, where to put my finger to kind of stop the bleed, where would that be? I'll give you two areas. One, kids ministry. Second, guest services. You'll see the needs that are there. But these two areas we have are critical. So what's going to happen right now is that the, the team are going to come back. They're going to sing a, a, a great song. And as they do that, could you just look over the card? And if you recognize, you know what? I'm open to exploring, serving in one of these areas. Then what I want you to do, put your name on the card. Fill in some contact information. The ushers halfway through the song will come down with some offering plates. Don't have to put money in there. Of course, this church will accept it if you do. Um, just drop the, drop the card in there. And over the next 48 hours, our teams, according to the, the checkbox you sign, they will get back to you, just giving you more information about those service opportunities. Again, we're not asking you for now. We're asking you for later. But even if you're not in a position to fill that card in today, would you, would you pray about this? Church is just one way of serving Christ. The reason we're doing and restructuring the ministry in the way that we are is because we recognize that if we occupy all of your time serving in here, you won't have the time to serve out there. So what we're presenting to you here are only mission critical things. We don't want your time so used up that you have no time out there, but we do need your time. So I'm going to pray, and I pray that God will have spoken to, to your hearts just to encourage you, hey, this is a time to step in, to step out, to risk everything for the kingdom of God. This is also a time for us as a church family to say, God, thank you for what you've done over the last year. Thank you for what you're going to do over the next year. And just join us in praying that God would stir the hearts of our faith family to really step up 
and help us continue to minister to an ever-growing family. Won't you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that it is well with our soul. We thank you, Father, that one day our faith will become sight. Jesus will come again. And Father, on the basis of your word today that we've read and we've opened, we just pray that we would be found faithful. Faithfully using what you have given to us to bring the hope and life of Jesus to the ends of the world. And Father, that begins right here at home. So God, stir our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Move us, we pray. And as we serve you, build your kingdom in Jesus' name.